Hello, everybody. Welcome. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> Welcome in to Tim Hatch Live on YouTube.com. I'm so glad that you're here for finally another episode of 10 Questions with Tim. Uh, let me know in the chat where you are watching from, what are you having for lunch, and what's on your mind today? Is it snowy where you live? Is it sunny? A lot of different weather all throughout the nation. Anyway, welcome in. Let's get to the questions right now. Yeah, so like I said, let me know in the chat where you're watching from. Let me see if I have the chat on the screen. There we are. Hello, Larissa. Always on with us, Larissa. Thank you for joining us. And let me know in the chat where you're watching from. Love the interaction. 10 questions from you. What's on your mind? Lots of different stuff. Lots of cool questions came in today. And let's get to the very first one. My question is, what's your point of view of the metaverse? Thanks. Okay, well, <clears throat> the metaverse, um, my opinion or point of view is simple. The metaverse is an amoral thing. Well, it's not even really a thing, is it? It's like you can't reach out and touch the metaverse. Uh, the metaverse is this, uh, if, for those of you who don't know, is this new thing that uh, Facebook is developing. They've actually changed their name to Meta. Uh, recently to kind of go all in on this concept of a digital reality, a virtual reality where you will be able to buy virtual land, sell virtual products, advertise your stuff, your website, your thing, whatever you want to do. Uh, and then you put on these goggles and you go and you walk through all these, you know, fake lands and all this stuff. There's a lot of people that think it's going to be this huge booming industry. And you think about the world, like it's either we get to Mars or we uh, just overpopulate the planet <laughs> at this point. But, but again, Overpopulation is not the problem. Don't let anybody tell you that. So um, the metaverse is this, you know, digital reality, virtual reality, where people can go on and kind of live these alternate lifestyles. Okay, well, my point of view about the metaverse is the same as almost anything else in creation. It can be used for good. It can be used for evil. Now, I will tell you this, and this is kind of exciting. I haven't even told my church this, but we're going on the metaverse, and we actually have services in virtual reality right now. People don't even realize it, and it's not really all that technical. It's not even that... Uh, well-developed yet, we're still working on it, but we just basically play our services on a big screen where you can go into a theater and watch it. So it's kind of interesting. I think uh, what has happened historically in amongst Christians has, the, has been this overreaction against uh, emerging, tech, emerging technologies because we don't understand them. And so then we tend to get very uh, leery of them and afraid of them. And then we vil sometimes we vilify them that we did this with the internet. I remember, funny story, my very first time at a church convention, I remember one of the sermons was God cursed the internet. And I was thinking back in 1996 or 1998, I forget when. So literally the preacher on the stage for the conference was talking about all the evils of the internet. Well, the internet right now is helping this happen, is it not? The internet is helping you grow in Christ if you watch the deep end, uh, the deep dive, hopefully, and you know, your local church or your home church, the deep end is amoral, uh, the deep end, the, the internet is amoral. It can help you connect with God through mediums like this or connect with all sorts of immorality. See, human beings are the problem. It's not the things that are created. It's the humans and their evil hearts. It is the heart of man that is deceptive, Jesus says. The heart of man that is beyond cure, Jeremiah says. Out of the heart of man, Jesus says, what? Flows, immorality, evil thoughts, murders, fornications, adultery, slander, lies, on and on and on it goes. So the metaverse is going to be another blank canvas on which the human heart will paint either things for good or for evil. Because humans, as evil as they are, also have a pro um, an enormous propensity for good. And they don't all have to be Christians to have good things come out of them. A lot of non-Christians do very good things. I think that if you look over the course of human history, you will see far more Christians do far more good than non-Christians. But that's for another day and another argument. So my point of view is it's amoral, not immoral and not moral. It's amoral. It's an object or this fake virtual object that we are going to use for good or for evil. And so I would say, if you don't want to do it, don't do it. But if, if Christians could get on board with this, let's use any technology, any emerging technology to um, beautify God's creation, to edify God's people, and to build up the church, and then also to reach people uh, with the gospel. That's what our church is planning to do with the metaverse. I hope you will 
do that with your use of the metaverse uh, and uh, or if not just use it for enjoyment and you know good pastimes that's my point of view thanks for the question let's see is there anybody else up here on the chat hello everybody hi diane hi nicole hey jared and jared is having a fruit smoothie mm -hmm. nicole first time i've been able to be live oh glad you're here nicole and diane watching from lincoln mall okay amen let me know what's for lunch people i just had oh i just had a fantastic um chicken tender sub and quick question for the chat chicken tender sub blue cheese dressing or ranch let me know what's your choice blue cheese dressing or ranch in the chat below <laughs> when you have a chicken tender sub let's get to question number two because i'm getting hungry even as i talk about that recently i had a conversation with a family member in regards to homosexuality more specifically nature versus nurture my family member insists that our gay family member was born gay and that god loves everyone and forgives everyone my response was god does not love us all but that does not mean i'm sorry that god does love us all sorry but that does not mean there will not be judgment needless to say it did not go well well these conversations um are always touchy because people have very strong feelings about homosexuality you know even in confessing christian churches there are very strong feelings on opposing sides of christianity which boggles my mind because scripture could not be more clear about whether god uh, condones or does not condone same-sex relationships, intimate same-sex relationships. He is clear throughout both Testaments in six different passages that this is not moral. It is not moral. It's not a good. Not, 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 it is not good. It does not uh, increase human flourishing. Um, the human anatomy, you can clearly see, you do not need to be a brain surgeon to understand that human anatomy does not testify that this is normal, nor is it natural. Romans chapter one talks about that, it, that the women gave up natural relations with men for uh, relations that were against nature. So I understand that <clears throat> from your question, there's a family member who's gay and they are, or let's just say homosexual. The term gay too, also hijacked from, used to mean happy. Now it's homosexual. Anyway, you have a family member who's homosexual and they are trying to come up with any, an, a reason Actually, what they're trying to come up with is an absolution. That's really what they're coming up with. They're trying to say, I need absolution for this. Well, my question is, why do you need absolution? If, it, if it's natural and if it's normal, why the part about God forgives everyone, even in your question, that God loves everyone and God forgives everyone? And secondly, does God actually forgive everyone? If you read your scriptures, you'll see that he does not. He does not forgive the wicked. The wicked will pay for their sins for all eternity. The, the wicked, the, the unrepentant sinners do not get forgiveness. When we forget, when we confess our sins, first John one, we are forgiven. So this idea that God forgives everyone, then if you want to go with that, be my guest. It's not biblical, but here's your problem. Are you ready? Cause your problem's going to start right now. Then Hitler is in heaven. Mao is in heaven. Uh, the golden state killer is going to heaven. Ted, Ted Bundy actually might be in heaven. He confesses sins. Uh, Greg, oh, no, no, Jeffrey Dahmer. Dahmer is in heaven. I mean, you know what? And I, I think actually he confessed Christ. I don't know. But anyway, I mean, take the worst, worst, worst person you can imagine. And they're in heaven because God forgives everyone. God loves them. After all, he forgives everyone. No. <laughs> so there is a judgment. You were right. It did not go well. So the question that is not actually there, which I think you're asking is, were you right? I think you were fine in saying that God does love. I don't know if you can say, biblically speaking, and this is going to shock some of you, that God loves everyone. I don't think that scripture testifies that he loves the world. Yes, generally speaking, and to show the world that he's, he's a God of love, he gave his son. But the Lord hates them that cause division, them that are swift to evil, uh, them that have lying tongues. I mean, the Lord hates the wicked. And so you have to understand that these, uh, I call them pop psychology theologies, pop theology statements. You know, God loves us all. So it really doesn't matter. And we're all forgiven. This is not biblical. The Bible offends us. The scriptures offend us. The truth of the word of God offends us. And it's done its work if it offends us because it's meant to counter that internal um, navigational compass that 
aims to be like God, aims to be God in our own imagination, the original temptation that Eve and Adam faced. You will be like God, but on your own terms. So this is pop theology uh, that your uh, family member is spouting off there. I would just counsel you to be very um, careful in your conversations with people like this. You're a family member. You're talking about another family member. It's always going to be complicated when it comes to family. You, you, you can't uh, also be belligerent with family when it comes to the word of God. You got to take count. You, you got to take some wisdom there and, and say, Lord, guard my mouth as I speak to them. They, they disagree with me. I disagree with them. There's probably never going to be agreement if we just argue with each other and get heated. Help me to love them. Help me to show the love of Christ to them. Help me to be a light and a witness to them. And when they ask me for what I believe about the scriptures, help me to say what's true. And here's the big deal about that. Say truth and then step away. Like You don't have to go back. You don't have to defend the truth. This is what the Bible clearly says. And I can, and I counsel you to look it up for yourself. And if you have more questions, let me know. But you know, the back and forth, it doesn't help anybody. And then his family members and you got to see each other on the holidays, I'm sure. So just take it easy and with wise counsel, approach those difficult topics. Okay. Back to the chat. How are we doing? Buffalo ranch question. Um, so yeah, Lindita. Hello. How are you? Jared, if Buffalo blue cheese, otherwise ranch. Yeah, Jared, I'm almost with you there, but I think my sub had Buffalo chicken and ranch blue cheese and it was delicious. Uh, ranch, ranch dressing and it was delicious. <laughs> Going to La Familia for chicken parm. La Familia. La Familia. Mm -hmm. Good for you, chicken parm. Italian. Good choice. Question number three. Here we go. Let's put it on the screen, full screen. I was wondering what it exactly means to make a promise or covenant to God and the importance of it. I recently made a promise to God that is extremely important to me, but other people aren't taking it as seriously. They say that it's just a promise and not a full comp, uh, commitment. Where in the Bible does it talk about what it means to make a promise or covenant with God? God bless. Okay, well, where in the Bible, I did actually have to do a little pre-work for this question. Several places. Actually, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, believe it or not. Interestingly enough, Jesus says when you make a vow... Uh, don't say, I swear by this, that, the other thing he says, actually, it's Matthew 5.33. He says, again, you have heard it said to those of old, you, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. Now, Jesus is also referencing uh, Ecclesiastes 5, which says, uh, and I'll read this to you, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 5, 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let, your mouth, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams come, uh, when dreams increase, words grow many, there is vanity. So what Jesus is saying is, don't make vows. <laughs> Very simply put, to answer your question here, what does it mean to make a promise? It means that you make a vow. God, I'm going to... Go to church for the next 16 weeks if you help me get out of this jam. Whatever. Because you made a promise. Well, you don't know what's going to happen over the next 16 weeks. You could get sick. You could get COVID. Okay. You could have a, a, something happen. You could, you know, have an accident. Heaven forbid, heaven forbid. Don't make vows. That's what the Bible says about it. Uh, you made a promise to God that is extremely important to you. Then take it. And make it, like make, a, fulfill it. Jesus actually says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. So if you said something to God and you made a promise, just follow through. And then can I just counsel you? Don't make any more promises. <laughs> That's always been my take. I just take Jesus for what he says here. Because when he was talking, you know, the Pharisees, they played a lot of religious games. The scribes, the, re the religious leaders of Israel in those days, played a lot of religious games and they would make vows, um, and they would say, I swear on the temple. I swear on Jerusalem. I swear on my own head. And Jesus is like, this is meaningless. This is the same thing as people saying, I swear on my kids. What does that mean? 
what if you don't do it like your kids are going to suddenly die you don't have you don't have power over that so the problem that we face with this stuff is that we have a propensity to lie it's the human condition the heart of sin right so we're always trying to prove ourselves not liars that's really what the problem is and so because we have this propensity to lie and we all know we do we will say stupid things like i swear on whatever to say no you can really trust me this time and the, the, the fundamental underlayment of um, scripture is that your heart's evil. You're, you're, you could be deceiving yourself even as you make that promise. So best not to swear at all. Just say yes or no in the moment. Other than that, you're just playing with evil. Uh, James backs Jesus up. James 5.12, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into con condemnation. So I would say to you, fulfill the promise. Don't worry about what other people think about your promise. It's not about them, it's between you and God. So just follow through, get this commitment done, and then don't make any more commitments like that. Just walk day by day with the Lord in fellowship with him, trusting him uh, for your for your for your life and for your plans and for your future. Amen. Back to the chat. Hello, everybody. Oh, let me go to this one. There we go. No one else is here telling me what they're eating. Come on, tell me what you're eating for lunch. I've I'm very curious. I'm nosy. I want to be involved in your life today. <laughs> Welcome to Ten Questions with Tim, everybody. I'm so glad you're here. Hey, like the video if you would do me a big favor. Like the video. Subscribe if you're not subscribed, and hit that notification bell so that you can get notified when we go live every time. Question number four, I own a med spa and do procedures like Botox, fillers, facials. While many struggle with visible issues that affect their confidence that I can change for them, I am uncertain that this type of work is, is made in the image of God as we all are fearfully and wonderfully made. What are your thoughts? Thank you for your input as this has become a great struggle slash battle for me as a Christian. Can I just answer this very quickly? Don't struggle with this. You're helping people feel better about their appearance. Does it become an idol for a lot of people to say, I need to look exactly this way and I need to hold on to youth forever? Yes, of course. But you're not responsible for that. You're responsible to make a living, um, to do honest work, and to do something that helps people. And I have, you know, we, we, we just have to think again, like the metaverse is the inevitable trajectory of the internet. Well, cosmetic surgery, Botox, these things are the inevitable, you know, destination of looking nice, of, you know, combing your hair and putting clothes on. We, we, we Christians used to do this. A lot of not, um, legalistic Christians still do this. Like they think it's, they think it's um, somewhat superiorly moral to not wear makeup to not dress nice, to not, you know, fix up their homes, to live in poverty. <laughs> no, look at creation. Look at creation. Creation is gorgeous. It's beautiful. And there are all kinds of different flowers. And, and by the way, every, every spring, God gives the entire Northern hemisphere a makeover, doesn't he? <laughs> we all get new leaves, new flowers, new blooms. Every year, God's like, makeover time you know so it's pretty cool and i don't think that there's anything wrong with that especially for your own physical body i mean if if you want to go in that direction of that this is evil well then don't take care of your body don't work out don't run don't exercise because that's also making you and that could turn into an idol so don't do it at all no, no we don't want to play that game now i know what some of you are going to say you're going to quote first peter to me and i know where you're going First Peter, don't let your adorning be the braiding of hair and the outward exterior. Okay, Peter says, don't let your adorning be. Don't let that be what makes you beautiful. Yes, take care of yourself, but don't let that be the thing that defines you. Now, back to you, there may be people that you do the work for and it defines them. That's not your issue. Your issue is do what they paid you to do, charge a fair price, don't uh, extort, uh, money and pay your taxes and tithe tithe and then pay your taxes that's what i would counsel you to do i don't think you have to fear 
feel any guilt about this whatsoever. And uh, the idea that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, that's true. But then why do we have reconstructive surgery for people when they have breast cancer or we have, um, you know, when somebody's burned badly in a fire, we don't say, well, you know, fearfully and wonderfully made. No, we would try to, you know, do the skin grafts and make them appear more beautiful. Look, nobody, nobody wants to deal with these debilitating uh, physical issues if they don't have to. And so there's also a very good benefit to a lot of plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery in the industry that you're involved in. And I don't think you have to feel guilty at all. You might, there might be people who disagree with me. I don't care. Um, I don't think that there is anything wrong with what you're doing. And I don't want you to feel guilty about that. And uh, may God bless you in your endeavors. Okay, back to the chat because I'm really curious about the blue cheese and ranch thing. Okay, uh, really. I have a sub. It's got chicken tenders. Do I put blue cheese or do I put ranch? Your thoughts in the chat below. <laughs> Sean Strzok. Hey, Sean. Avocado toast. Look at you. You're so health conscious. You make me sick. Nicholas Poulin watching from Lakewood Ranch about to head to Chipotle for lunch. Chipotle. Hey, Nick. Good to see you. Chipotle. Are you going to do the tofu? Tofu. Tofu. Uh, Lydia. Lindita. Sorry. Eating some plantains, fried seasoned eggs, sauteed sweet onions with spam. No. No. I have a funny story about spam. I could tell you about it from my youth ministry days. Let me know in the chat if you want me to tell you the story. Uh, if I have time, I'll tell you the story. Okay, question number five. Let's go there. I just watched a documentary about the machine gun preacher and his ministry in Africa. He, he often has to get into violent gun battles with traffickers who kidnap young girls to be sold into slavery. What do you think of his ministry? Well, again, another easy question for me. I think his ministry is absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I think he's amazing and he is an inspiration. And I'm glad that you watched the documentary because the movie, of course, uh, took a lot of leniency with his story and he was quite disappointed with it. If you read his, uh, if you watch his interviews on YouTube, he's quite disappointed with the, um, the inevitable result of his story being portrayed in a movie. Great movie. You know, Gerard Butler, he nails the part. It's actually a very moving movie. But then... There's a, at the end credits of the movie, there's a part where it shows the real life machine gun preacher. And I don't know what his name is. This is from Philip Cruz. If you want to let me know in the comments, what's his name? I forget. So they have him come up for the end credits. They often do this with biopics. And he comes up and he says, you know, a lot of people have a problem with what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, the morality of it. And oh, so, uh, so everybody knows if you haven't seen the movie or heard about machine gun preacher, he goes into Africa and he rescues young girls from sex trafficking and young boys from sex trafficking and slavery, but he has to kill people to do it. He has to you know, take firearms and he goes and he wages war against these militant um, abductors and then he gets them out and he's done it for years. And it's actually a powerful story. But um, so he comes on at the end credits and what I love what he says is a lot of people have a problem with what I do, but I'll tell you something. If you come to me and you say to me, my kid's missing, he's been kidnapped, and I tell you, give me 24 hours and I'll get them back for you. Do you care how it gets done? <laughs> and I just, I just love that. I, I really get moved by him saying it because, yeah, I don't care. That's my kid. You know, so I don't have a problem with his ministry at all. Uh, he's dealing with the absolute hell of society. You know, when we talk about kids, and I said this to my church a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, and I want to say it here. Not all sin is the same. Please don't fall into that trap. Oh, all sin is the same. Nope. Even Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, if you hurt one of these little ones, it'd be better if a millstone was tied around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Don't give me all sin is the same. You hurt a kid, you tick off the heart of God in ways you cannot imagine. So Jesus would never have said something like that if he didn't mean it, right? So I said to my church, Everybody's welcome. Any sinner is welcome here. But, they, but then I did say, there's one qualifier. I said, if you hurt a, if you hurt a kid, because I know that there's people who are registered sex offenders or they're in prison watching me and they are in there because of sex offense against a minor. I said, no, you're not welcome back into the building. You can watch us online. I'm glad that this venue is available for you. And, and that's important. There's got to be a qualifier for that because that is a heinous sin to hurt a child, an innocent child, to use your adult strength and mental capacities and manipulation skills to take advantage of an innocent 
ignorant, uneducated, and many and in many cases, in many cases, a developmentally ill child. God have mercy on you. I mean, if you've done it, you got to really repent. So when it comes to the machine gun preacher guy, I'm like, save the kids. Save the kids. And one less living, um, amoral, I'm sorry, immoral kidnapper of children on the earth is a good thing. Is a good thing. Uh, now, I'm not about to get into it, and I don't want you to go sign up for his ministry, <laughs> but I don't have a problem with what he does. So thank you for the question. I appreciate it. Back to the chat. So yes, love spam. I run it off at the gym so I don't feel guilty. You have to feel guilt about spam? Is that really, is that fattening? I didn't know. I just thought it was gross. <laughs> anyway, let's get to question number six. Hey, pastor, I saw this on TikTok and uh, it had me rethinking Christmas. Just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Please, please and thank you, Anonymous. What would Jesus say about Christmas? Okay, so she saw this guy's video on Christmas and this guy makes the claim that this guy is the real Brad, the real, real Brad Leah. Uh, basically, the summation of his video is that we, don't, we shouldn't celebrate uh, Jesus' birthday on December 25th because December 25th was tied to a pagan holiday where they sacrificed babies that were conceived the previous Easter, which is another pagan holiday. Okay, so I, lo I, read, <laughs> I, I watched the whole video, and I have to say to you that I have rarely come across a video um, on the pagan roots of Christmas and Easter that is more detached from historical fact than that video. <laughs> I mean, literally nothing that he says in the video is right. And if you want to go and look it up, it's a really waste of your time. There's nothing in the video that's right. I mean, he says that the Christmas Day, 20th, the 25th of December, was founded, was originally um, a day to worship the, the god Ishtar, the god of war and fertility. And he says that's where we get eggs and bunny rabbits from. What? <laughs> where, where do bunny rabbits and eggs... What do they have to do with war and fertility? So no, he's wrong pretty much throughout the entire video. It, it was clickbait video. Uh, it was just to get people all into his other videos, really, which are all about entrepreneurship. And he's dropping F-bombs and S-bombs left, right, and center. And this guy is just trying to become a TikTok influencer and looks like he's succeeding. Good for him, but he's, he's full of garbage. So here's what I think. Back to the question. Let me sum it all up. Don't get your theological truth or historical truth from TikTok. Just don't do it. I mean, anybody can put any nut stuff on TikTok. So uh, I would say, and I just want to finish up my admonition, get yourself into a good church. Get yourself into a place where there's a pastor who's been educated, because there's a lot of non-educated pastors out there, and go and attend and learn and grow, right? That's it. And I think that there has a case to be made now more than ever for theological education that is rooted in historical accuracy. In other words, did your pastor go to a college and learn about biblical history, Christian history, and, and world history? Did he go to seminary and do that all over again and learn it even in a more in-depth manner? These things matter. So anyway, all that to be said, TikTok is not the place to get theological truth. Okay. <laughs> Question number seven. We only got... Three, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh, four questions left. Okay. I wanted to ask you about the book of Enoch. My wife and I were discussing an article that was posted online where this book was mentioned. My question is, are there books of the Bible that are, that are omitted from the book? If so, why would God allow this? Okay. I think the question is, this last question that you have here, or second to last question is, are there books of the Bible that are omitted from the Bible? Right? That's what you mean by that. That's how the question came in. I just wanted to ask you, make sure that that's clear. If that was your question, just let me know. This is Rob Skahan. He's a regular deep ender, Tim Hatch Live person. So yes, there are books that are not in the Bible. They are not, they are uh, apocryphal. They are out of the canon. Canon is a word for the order or the, the collection of books that we, not we, but the theologians and uh, the Jewish theologians uh, made sure to name uh, before I would say the, um, well, I would say shortly after the return of the exiles, maybe about 200 years after the exiles. Now, Enoch, 
So that would put you at 200 BC. So Enoch, the book of Enoch, was written or at least attributed to writers in the second and first century BC. That would be 200 BC plus. So you think BC goes uh, down in number. So 200 to 100 is a very short time period. It's also very recent. We have Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, dated, even carbon dated from the Dead Sea Scrolls to 800 BC. Okay, we have the book of uh, the, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, dated to even before then. We don't have to even question the, the non-canonicity of Enoch. This has been supported again and again and again by countless theologians and scribes amongst the Jewish people. If you ever get the chance to go to Israel, you will find so much about this how diligent and how careful the Jews were to make sure the writings of our Bible, of our Old Testament, were preserved, were accurate, were word-for-word translations, had no mistakes. They would, and they did this on scrolls. And it's called, um, there's a place called the, the Museum of the Book. I think that's what it's called, the Museum of the Book. So, it's a beautiful little museum where you can go and you can see, and then you can go into this, like there's this underground, enormous round library that goes way down deep into the ground in, G- in Jerusalem today with all the copies of the original manuscripts that they have on record in that library. Now there's other, other libraries as well. Enoch has never been in question to be in the canon. It is too recently written. It has no authority in history. And so there's a reason why books in the Bible were omitted from Scripture, and that had to do with reliability, authorship. Can we rely that the author was the original author? Was this considered Scripture um, over the course of centuries? All that stuff to be, all that stuff is so deep. It is a profound. Um, uh, it is a profound process by which the Jews and then later the Christians made sure that no book got into the Bible, the canon, the collection of scripture, without, without um, absolute certainty that it was inspired texts from the Holy Spirit. It was called the Shrine of the Book. The museum is called the Shrine of the Book, and it is a beautiful experience if you ever get to go there. I remember, I mean, I, I've trusted the Bible my whole life, and then I just went to that museum, and I realized, and they take you on this tour and show you how, how diligent they are to preserve the scriptures and to preserve the collection. It's, it's astounding. And they don't let you touch anything. They don't let you touch the, the glass <laughs> that is keeping you from touching the signs that are pointing to the scrolls that are in another glass case. So it's amazing. It just shows you the intentional care of the Jewish people. And by the way, this is what makes the Jewish people uh, a distinct people in human history. You know, uh, the great Jewish rabbi that just died a little while ago. I forget what his name is. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and he writes about this in his book on leadership, and he talks about how the, the Egyptians built the ziggurats, you know, um, and the other, you know, ancient peoples built all these temples to their gods. What did the Jews do? They wrote their story, and they educated their young, and that's what made them different. They wrote it down, they preserved it, and they educated their kids in it. And they made sure that the story was right and copied word for word. It, there's actually, a, I think it's a factual reality that if a scribe was copying one parchment to another, one scroll to another, so he'd be reading one scroll to make a copy, right? If he, if he misspelled a word, if he misplaced a punctuation mark, they would destroy the whole scroll and start from scratch. And you think about Isaiah, one of the longest scrolls of the Old Testament, is, I think it's actually a two-scroll book in collection. So, you know, you have such care, such diligence in the Old Testament amongst the Jews for what scriptures made it in and what scriptures made it out. Enoch, dated, the earliest it can be dated is 1st, 2nd century BC, totally out of bounds for scriptural reliability. Okay, I hope that helps, Rob. Thanks for the question. Let's get to question number eight. In Ezra chapter 10, did God command that the Israelites divorce the foreign wives, or was that a command from Ezra himself? Should we as Christians ever advise divorce to others who seem to be in destructive marriages? Okay, this is a two-part question. Number one, there was no explicit command in Ezra that God 
told the people to divorce their wives. It was the response of the repentance that Ezra called the people to. Nehemiah and Ezra actually called the people to because of the fact that they had uh, intermarried with the pagan nations around them. So historical context matters. The Jewish people go into exile to the Babylonians in 582 BC. They spend 70 years there. And then the, uh, the Cyrus's edict of return is announced and he, they go through the Babylonian empire, the Median empire, the Persian empire, Cyrus, the Persian king says, go back and rebuild your temple. They go back on the third group groupings of people. There's a guy named Ezra who leads the people back to the, to the land. A lot of the Jews stayed in Persia and, uh, in the, in the, uh, leftover remnants of the, of the Babylonian empire, a few they call them the remnant, went back to the land to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah comes back later, rebuilds the walls. Beautiful story of how they come back, they rebuild. It's called Second Temple Judaism. That is the temple that Jesus will walk into, the second temple. The historical period from Ezra right through to the uh, AD 70 is called Second Temple Judaism because it was the second temple that they built. It was just a rebuilding of Solomon's original temple that was destroyed by, the Nebuch- by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian forces. So anyway... They came back to the land, all that to say this, they came back to the land and they start to rebuild and they start to get prosperous and things start to take off for them. And the, and then Ezra kind of like turns around. I'm very, I'm simplifying the story, but he kind of turns around and he sees that they're all starting to marry pagan wives again. He's like, whoa, this is what got us into the mess in the first place. This is what sent us into exile in the first place. He's like, how, how can we go back to the things that cost us this land in the first place? So renounce these marriages, put away these wives, and let's purify ourselves and get back to the God of Israel in humility. And and so the point of the story is that that call for divorce was in large part because they were realizing that they were making the same exact mistakes that cost them the land and cost them their prosperity in the first place, marrying, intermarrying with pagan women who will lead their hearts astray, as happened with uh, Solomon himself. So all that to be said your second question, should we as Christians ever advise divorce to others who seem to be in a destructive marriage? Yes. If it's a destructive marriage, if there's physical abuse, if there's repeated unrepentant adultery, of course, we don't have to have, you know, I know there's no Bible verse of that says, if, if thou husband beateth thee, divorceth him, right? There's no verse that says that. It does talk about sexual morality as a reason for divorce, but physical violence Repeated physical violence? Yeah, I don't want, we don't need a Bible verse for that. Get out of the marriage. Get away. Now then people will go, well, what about emotional violence and emotional abuse? I mean, th- th- then before you know it, he breathed on me wrong and I'm divorcing him. That's emotional abuse. And let's be careful, right? We don't want to go too far to the other end of the spectrum. A destructive marriage would be a physically abusive marriage or an unrepentant, adulterous marriage. And you want to make sure that you are not perpetuating a serious systemic evil in that environment. It'll hurt your kids. It'll hurt you. It'll hurt your neighborhood. It'll hurt your neighbors. It'll, it's just destructive. And so there's a, there is a case to be made for getting out of destructive uh, marriages. So I see the chat here. Ranch on my sub from Ed Mathers. Okay, Ed. Ranch. I had ranch and it was good. And I am reading your chat still over here on my phone. So I can't put it up on the screen. I know you guys can see it right below me. The question of the day is chicken tender sub, ranch or blue cheese? You decide. Let me know below. And I'm so glad that you're all here. Hi, Lemmy, Lemuel. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Babette. Hi, Douglas, Dragon Master, Dragon Master, Ben and Jared and Kathleen. Hey, everybody. Thanks for staying with me through this hot mess of a 10 questions with Tim experience. Okay, question number nine. So Satan obviously isn't omnipresent like God, and I believe the Bible says Satan will be cast into hell on Judgment Day. Does this mean that he is in a physical location on earth right now, walking among us, or is it the enemy's presence that exists? Um, Satan is in the studio right now. <laughs> he's messing with the stream and our computer, and he's trying to keep this content from getting in your ears. That's where he is. Oh, what a perfect question. And that was already lined up. So anyway... Yes, Satan is walking around the earth. Uh, We have record both in the New Testament and Old Testament about this. Old Testament, book of Job, chapter 1, Satan appears before the Lord with the angels, and and God says, what you been up to? He goes, I've been walking around the earth to and fro. 
he says, have you considered my servant Job? And then the story begins. He, Satan destroys Job to kind of prove that God is only served because God will give you goodies if you serve him. And the story of Job is, no, there is a man who is righteous who will serve God without the goodies and suffer and then save his friends. And it's a picture of Jesus who suffers unrighteously for us even though he was righteous, and then he saves us, his friends, who have no clue about the wisdom of God. He brings us back to God. Anyway, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Jesus had a real temptation with the devil in the wilderness, on earth. So Satan is absolutely walking around on earth right now, and he knows his days are numbered, and he knows that his end is ahead, and he knows that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. And there is no chance for redemption for him or any angel that fell. There is no chance. Uh, so you have to watch out. You have to be on your guard. And what the scripture says in First Peter chapter 5 is you got to humble yourself and submit to God and resist the devil. Three things. Humble yourself and submit to God and resist the devil that he might flee from you. A lot of Christians don't want to humble themselves. They wonder why the devil gets has the way from. By the way, it's not just the devil, but it's the demons of hell that are in league with the devil under his direction. I believe that the, de the devil is strategic. I believe the devil has a book on you. I do. I believe he knows when your weak points are, what your tendencies are, what your history is like. I believe he knows who's hurt you in your past. I believe he can imitate, as scripture says, the angels, right? He comes to us as an angel of light. He looks good. He looks holy. He looks pure. He looks right. No, he's evil but he puts on a front. That's what he's been doing since the foundation of the earth. You've got to be aware of this. So humble yourself and understand that this is a serious battle with a serious enemy who is real. Secondly, submit to God. You cannot resist the devil if you're not submitted to God. You cannot resist the devil if you do not have a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ's blood has not bought you and cleansed you, you have no power against the enemy. The only power that you have against the enemy is the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. So you submit to God. God, I am yours. I give my life to you. I surrender to you. And then you uh, resist the devil, which means you, you come against him in Jesus' name. Now, Jude gives us a line, a phrase that is very, empower, uh, very powerful. He says, don't say, I rebuke you. Say, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. He talks about the archangel Michael who doesn't say, I, I rebuke you. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And I think that that is a recipe for us as Christians today. And I say that all the time. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Get behind me in Jesus' name. I am not standing in my righteousness and my holiness. I'm standing in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And some of you need to do that. And I think that when you say Satan, it refers to all the demon horde that is underneath him. So he is organized, he is strategic, he is smart, he, has, he knows human history, he knows your history, he knows your tendencies. Don't be ignorant. Paul talks about that. Let's not be ignorant of the devil's devices. He is trying to deceive and mislead God's people, and he is absolutely walking around on the earth right now. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, you know, there's two extremes when it comes to the devil. One is to think he's everywhere and everything, and one to disregard that he exists at all. And those are two wrongful extremes. What you want to do is stay right in the middle. He does exist. Not everything is the devil. The flat tire on the way to church is not the devil, right? Uh, the you know, spilled milk is not the devil, okay? That's just happenstance. But there is a spiritual enemy that you are fighting right now, and you must stand strong. Okay. If you have any other questions, please put them in the chat because I can see them here on my phone. And uh, I thank you guys for your interaction here. And again, we got 42 watchers, so that's great, even with all the stuff that's happened today. Last question, and I do have time for more questions, so let them come in in the chat, and I will answer them as they come in. Question number 10. Hey, so I want to know why God hardened Pharaoh's heart when trying to flee the Israelites, free the Israelites. If freeing his people was the goal, why did God command it, oh, I'm sorry, why did God make it more difficult for Moses to carry out the task he had given him? Well, okay, a couple of things. The premise of your question, I just want to make a correction. God did not make it hard for him. Pharaoh made it hard for him. Yes, Pharaoh made it hard for him because God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, God tells Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. This is, going to, this is part of the plan, Moses. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Through that hardening, I will demonstrate my glory over Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt. Now, some cool uh, historical, this is why it's important that your pastor knows history, historical details about the plagues that came upon Pharaoh in Egypt. Every plague, darkness blocks out the sun, dust of the earth, the locusts come from, the cattle, and especially the last plague, 
uh, well, the Nile turned to blood. The last plague is the death of Pharaoh's son. Every single, oh, and then the frogs. Every single plague is a direct target hit on attack on the gods of ancient Egypt. They worshiped frogs. They worshiped the Nile. They worshiped the ground. They worshiped cows. They worshiped Pharaoh's son. They called him the son of God. So God, and they worship the sun, so they, he, he darkens the sky for, I think, three days. Every plague was not God just kind of like showing off, like, look what I can do. No, God was saying, I'm going to target every single deity in the Egyptian nation to show them their gods are powerless in my presence. Very powerful truth there. Very interesting historical fact about the plagues. The plagues were not random acts of violence on God's part. They were targeting and direct hitting and annihilating Egypt's gods. Okay. The question might be now, well, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? And why didn't God just soften Pharaoh's heart? Well, this is a, a question that we're actually, actually going to cover on a deep dive. When we get to Romans chapter nine, he says to uh, Pharaoh, for scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he is, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The question now is, does this hardening, is this hardening referring to instigation or simply reaction to who God is? Instigation meaning, did God intentionally say, let me take Pharaoh's heart and harden him? Or reaction, meaning that because Pharaoh thought he was God, as soon as God showed up, he would just grow harder because any any threat to his divinity would just sit, put him over the edge, would further harden him. I believe it is both and, okay? And I believe that it is a warning for people. Don't harden your heart because if you harden your heart and do not repent, your heart will get harder because what mankind is struggling with in his heart is this desire to be God in their own eyes, whether that be atheists, agnostics, non-Christians, whoever, always searching to be their own God, their own your person in control of their own destiny. They're going to be in charge. They're going to do whatever they want because they can make their life what they want it to be. That is the original temptation that Eve faced, right? It always, always goes back to that temptation. We want to be God. That's really what it comes down to. Even people who don't believe in God want to be God. That's why um, cults like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, you know, countless others talk about Jesus becoming God, that he wasn't eternally God, the son with the father before his incarnation. He became a man. He was born a man. And then he became God uh, at the, you know, baptism moment. And then God kind of adopted him and then he became God and became divine then. That's what Mormonism teaches. That's what Jehovah's Witness teaches. That's what every false doctrine, cult teaches. Because here's why they believe that if Jesus could become God, well, guess what? We can become God. All we got to do is get our act together. All we got to do is do better. All we got to do is believe in Jesus and then we become God. No. How did I get here? Because <laughs> Pharaoh was following the original temptation to be his own God, just like we all are to some degree, to be in charge, to be in control. When God shows up, we will, if we do, if we resist him being God, because we, it, it, his being God proves that we are not God, we will harden in our heart. And the more we resist, the harder we get, which is exactly what happened with Pharaoh. And yet, as the scripture says, I'm going to do, I'm going to use that hardening to show my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So it's kind of funny because God gets the last word with Pharaoh's rejection to believe in and trust and submit to God. God is always going to be God. He, there's no unseating him from his throne. No one should want to because it's a fool's errand. And secondly, he is good. God is tremendously good at being God. In fact, you could say he's perfect. He's perfectly cut out to be God. So don't mess with it. <laughs> Rather submit, enjoy, and relish and rejoice in his divinity, his glory, his honor, and his worship. So God used Pharaoh to get glory, to redeem his 
people to show the falsehood of all the gods of Egypt. And then ultimately it is a warning for Christians to humble themselves and seek God and serve God. Okay. Thank you for the question. Any questions coming online here? And I will check out your chat. And I'm thankful, guys, that you stayed on with us. Am I in Florida interested in learning more about Waters Church of Palo Beach? Come and see us at Waters Church of Palo Beach. It's the only way you're going to find out about us. I'd love to have you. Okay. Douglas White, I think that's the Russians and Chinese messing with the stream. <laughs> Probably. Deborah Paranto, Ranch, yes. Dragon Master, how else can I share Christ with others, especially at work when I, when I spend most of, where I spend most of my time? You can, you can share Christ at work through diligent work. You can share Christ at work through not complaining when you're asked to work extra hours, work beyond the time. You can share Christ at work by watching your coworkers and seeing how are they doing, checking with them, being a light, being an example, you know, uh, just modeling a behavior that shows the goodness of the Lord in your life by caring for other people. Uh, the best way that we will win people to Christ, okay, outside of preaching the gospel, which is ultimately the only way to win people to Christ, the gospel has to be preached. We'll get to that in Romans 10. But here's the best way. You must live in the goodness of God and celebrate and rejoice and be grateful. The scripture actually says, be grateful in all things for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. One of the greatest testimonies in our age right now to believing in Christ is to have a joyful heart and a grateful heart because our world has a serious happiness problem, a lack of joy, a serious entitlement issue. And the counter narrative to that is Christians who realize that they don't deserve anything, yet Jesus did everything necessary to provide them with everything, and you have a relationship with the Father of life, the God of all creation, and he'll never leave you and forsake you. And that should, present, that should provide in your heart immense joy and gratitude. And I think a joyful heart and a grateful heart are the two best ways to win people to Christ. Amen. Thank you for the question. Uh, any other questions in the chat? This is Nicole. Oh, sorry. Let me not skip any here. Deborah Parento, is it biblical to have my body cremated? I covered this on one of the past episodes. Check it out, Kelly. You can put that in the screen in this in the description or in the chat there. I think it actually was the last one. So check out my answer there. Thanks for the question, Deb. Quick answer is I wouldn't say it's biblical. I don't think it's immoral. I don't think it's immoral to have your body cremated. Okay. Next question. <laughs> does God, this is Nicole Haddock, does God allow those who have passed on who are in heaven to communicate with us on earth? Uh, let me uh, let me answer this question carefully because there's no official biblical doctrine about conversating, conversating, conversing with the dead. However, there is an experience where the dead converse with the living in Second Samuel, First Samuel, First Samuel, with Saul at the witch of Endor when he has the witch of Endor summon the spirit of Samuel. <laughs> and I can tell you that the, the whole episode is a serious issue for <laughs> biblical scholars because you got this witch summoning a righteous prophet on behalf of a wicked, godforsaken king. <laughs> there are so many theological things wrong with that moment. <laughs> but yet it happens. So the hard answer cannot be no. The hard answer cannot be no, Nicole. It might very well be possible to communicate with the dead. Uh, it is not advisable. Because the only example that we have of it is a wicked, godforsaken king named Saul who was building monuments to himself and hunting down David when he should have been fighting Israel's enemies. And uh, he has to go to a witch to make it happen. So this is not like the Lord... I, I say this regularly on the 10 questions because it seems like we get a lot of questions about the descriptive elements of the scriptures and not the prescriptive elements of the scriptures. You've got to know the difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive elements of the scriptures are that we get stories of what happened and prescriptive elements of the scriptures are 
We are told this is what should be done. So, Abraham sleeps with Sarah's mistress, Sarah's servant, and has a son named Ishmael. That is a description of what happened. That is not a prescription for men to sleep with their wives' administrative assistants. Got it? (laughs) So, I'm not going to say, hey, yeah, the Bible condones it and the Bible allows and God allows it. And at the same time, I can't say it's not possible. I'm just going to tell you that it's not advisable because again, the only illustration that we have in scripture is from an evil, uh, an evil example. Isn't that necromancy? Well, uh, necromancy, I think isn't that necromancy is um, one and have intimate relation. No, that's necrophilia. Sorry, <laughs> I was going to go somewhere else with that. Yes, necromancy. And I don't think that the scriptures condone it. Okay. Not what I mean. Sorry, pastor. I mean, can family members give us signs or be with us? Well, again, they're dead. So you're talking about family members who are dead and the communique of the possibility of that communication happening between the dead and the living. And again, I don't think you want to look to your dead relatives for direction and guidance. You You need to look to the scriptures. So again, what's prescriptive, not descriptive. What's prescriptive is Jesus said, abide in me and let my words abide in you. And then you're going to ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is important. And I'm glad that you followed up with the second question because Nicole, it's imperative upon you to say, I'm not going to look to my dead relatives for direction. I'm going to look to my living Jesus for direction. He's the one who conquered death. He's the one who died for me, who loved me. By the way, Nicole, just so you know, Jesus loves you more than your dead relatives. Uh, Jesus loves you more than anyone will ever love you ever in your life. And he will never stop loving you at that level of love. And he is the one who can tr- you can trust with every issue of your life. And he will guide you and he will be with you. And the Holy Spirit will speak to you and will reveal to you the things that Jesus has said to guide you forward in your life. Don't look to the dead. Do what the scriptures prescribe for you. Look to Christ. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm sure Paul, a Jewish theologian, could have said, yeah, I've got some dead people on ahead of me who are guiding me. He doesn't do that. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. And it's imperative that you make Jesus the center of your life, the Lord of your life. Thank you for that question. And there's one last question here that came in through chat. Uh, This is from Waters Church YouTube. Hey, Tim, I have a question. What can you say to Christians who are afraid to go to church because of COVID or Christians in general who are afraid because of COVID? I would say, come to church for heaven's sakes. (laughs) At this, is COVID still a thing? Because I think it's over. I really do. The Omicron has swept over most of the population. Everybody's going to get it. I got it. Everybody I know has got it. Everybody, I don't think I can name a person, actually, <laughs> other than my wife, who has not had COVID. So it's kind of sweeping over. It's kind of doing what uh, pandemics do. Pandemics become endemic, and then they are over. Get to church. My goodness. The question I always have for people are who are afraid to go to church because of COVID is, did you go to the grocery store? Did you go to the post office? Did you go to the mall? Did you go to Target? Did you go to Walmart? Why different rules? Why different rules for church and for Walmart? That's not right. I don't care what anybody says. You say, well, they sing in church. Have you been to church lately? It's like one in six people sing. Okay. Uh, and in our church, uh, the, the the auditorium is so large, you can socially distance distant distance very easily thank you for the question though and what would i say to christians who are afraid because of covid i think that they're hypocrites honestly i think they're hypocrites because they don't go to church only because of covid i guarantee you they go almost anywhere else there are a few people who have serious health problems and they have let me know in the chat they have serious health problems and they're asthmatics and they have diabetes and they have all these other things and they can't do it and they stay home but you know what they're consistent because they stay home from all the other places too and I'm not talking to those people. I'm talking to people who are perfectly healthy outside of, the, outside of the potential of getting COVID. And they are just making an excuse. Please do not, do not overlook the human propensity to rebel against God, even in the, 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 the guise of good intentions. Oh, I'm, I'm being safe. Good intention to be safe. No, you're being rebellious. You've just, you've just chosen to slap this safety sticker over your rebellion to give you some semblance of, um, you know, confidence in your decision. Absolution, if you will. 
So Dragon Master has a great question. When is your second book coming out? Hopefully July, Dragon Master. And I'm excited about my second book. It's called Ending Emptiness. And I am so looking forward to getting that into your hands. It's based on the book of Ecclesiastes and a wonderful text written by an old man who had done everything in life you could imagine and then came up empty. And then he gives a, he gives us a prescription actually in the book for how to end emptiness in our lives. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks for putting up with the, um, the, the nonsense with the computer flipping out on it. I'm going to make an investment right after this show goes off the air. We're going to buy a backup battery for a computer. So this will never happen again. Follow us on all the social media channels. We do have a TikTok available. That is one TikTok channel you can get good theology from. Everywhere else you can go. Tim Hatch Live, get swag, whatever you want to do. I'm glad that you were here. We will be back next month with 10 questions with Tim. It's never too early to get the questions in. Ask at timhatchlive.com or the comments below. Love you guys. Thank you guys. And I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday night for The Deep End. Take care. Take care.